0: While a good software architect can be tremendously helpful to a team that is in a position to need one, software architects are more frequently in a position to do real damage to a team. Actually, software architecture mistakes are some of the most costly mistakes in software development. In this episode, we're going to talk about some common mistakes made by software architects and what you can do instead. It's not all that difficult to avoid most of these mistakes. However, they're still really common. But before we get started, Will, what have you been making mistakes about? I don't know. I've uh, got nothing.
1: Actually, you do. So I'm now on Linux completely. My desktop is to We're recording on that box. I had to go through a whole bunch of nasty script stuff on the laptop to get it recording. And on here on Ubuntu studio, I just click through menus and everything works. And the problem was, is I found some old tutorials and a lot of that was also learning how different pieces fit together. So yeah, it's all working great. My video games, uh, I've tested several like so far, none of them have failed to work. Some of them run more smoothly you know, like better frame rates and all that. I mean, I understand, I think, why that happened. But that was a thing I was not expecting. So, yeah, the migration was successful. Pretty much everything is done on it. Uh, I think the only things that are left are like getting uh, VMware working and getting my old Windows machine in a VM, you know, because I did Hmm. the conversion process and all that. Yeah, it's all pretty minor. I got to get backups fixed. And there's like a really short list of stuff that just is not going to be a problem. So, yeah, I'm pretty stoked by that because everything on here is is working great. Everything's working better than it was on Windows, like across the board. I've not really had any difficulty. I did have a little bit of difficulty, I guess, copying files from on Windows, trying to make that last backup because there were Node modules directories. And I wanted to see that I got all my files copied. So I you know, ended up having to go through and delete all the Node modules, directories, because otherwise it's going to take days just to copy stuff. That's a whole other topic. But
0: yeah. So anyway, things are going pretty good. So how about you? Well, I had a birthday. We didn't record last week because of it. My birthday was last Friday, but uh, Friday before last, we didn't record on Tuesday because I went to a Predators game but with a friend of mine who shares the birthday with me. So that was cool. We got like up close and personal seats, and uh, got to go to the Lexus Lounge, which is like premium area with like all you can-eat buffets and all you can drink drinks if you drink. I enjoyed not paying twelve dollars for a bottle of water every time I wanted one. Yeah, <laughs> that was really fun, like I said, we spent some money on some really great seats, and uh, so that was really cool. I got some hockey pucks, some autographed pucks while I was there. Uh, They do a thing for the Predators Foundation or something where it's a mystery puck. It's like, oh, it's wrapped up. And so you don't know who who you're getting. Kind of like you remember those like card games and stuff. You'd like buy a pack and you didn't know which card you were getting.
1: Isn't that like what Magic the Gathering did, I think, or something? I didn't really ever play that, but like baseball cards were like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, baseball cards. Are they still a thing? They, I guess it still exists. I don't know that I've seen that. I see them occasionally at Walmart, but that's about it. I have a whole box full of them. I wonder if they're worth any money. Everybody thought they were going to make a lot of money and, you know, whatever. Anyway, so we went to that. Uh, I got, like I said, a couple of signed pucks and a t-shirt. Then had lunch with my friends Sunday after church. They got me, Will can see it, the cajon back there. He doesn't know what that is, but it's the box drum sitting beside the blue thing. Yeah. So yeah, they got me a box drum for my birthday. Really fun. So looking forward to, to learning a little bit more of that, getting my rhythms down with it and just sort of, it's more of a tool to improve my rhythm on the piano than something to play. Like if I were a drummer, it would be a great thing, but I don't plan on being a drummer.
1: Not yet, at least. Yeah. I feel like you need to move back in with your mom before you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just at least so there's a good story.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Sure. I'm sure she would love that greatly. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, I did get my piano unitized. The back panel was starting to come off, so he, he put a bolt in and glued it so it'll stay and then tuned it again. He's got one more tuning to do before it'll really set, but uh, I've still been playing it, it's a lot of fun. It's mostly in tune. There's a little bit. It's like, you can tell it's a little out of tune, but it's still a lot of fun.
1: Saving money is hard, especially when you're constantly getting new musical
0: instruments. That one was a gift.
1: Yeah, but it's going to have accoutrements and accessories. Well,
0: not many, but yeah.
1: Yeah. You've probably already got a list. Well, duh. I have a list for everything. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado.
1: And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but also to take action so that you can create and live your best
0: life. Guys, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making those better financial decisions is easily going to pay for itself.
1: Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are
0: in your financial journey. And best of all, guys, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. And what that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation.
1: And if you want more guidance, you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you are probably facing. And he also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com.
0: Architecture projects are some of the most fun projects in development, or at least they often appear that way. There's often the perception that In these projects, you can fix all the little things that annoy you in your work environment. You can make it easier to roll out new features while keeping the system more stable and easier to maintain. While this can be true, there's some risk. Specifically, a lot of architecture projects tend to have no real purpose other than ego boosts for the developers on the project. While you might get away with this for a little bit, it's going to eventually cause problems for you. Now, it's also very easy for developers to get caught up in building castles in the sky. Left unattended, developers tend to build more and more complex things over time. It's just one of the things that a lot of us enjoy. while. It can be useful within the proper context. It's a lot easier to get lost in the weeds on these architecture projects.
1: It's also a mistake to think of architecture projects as projects that don't have customers. And that is one of the things that sounds really compelling about it. But an architecture project almost certainly has some indirect impact on actual clients. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Your clients also include the rest of your team. Other developers will have to deal with the implications of whatever changes that you happen to make. QA will likely have to change test procedures. Operations may need to deal with new and different errors while deploying brand new resources to various environments. Your database administrators may deal with changes to system load. Your security team will likely have new things to audit and potential new vulnerabilities to worry about. Even people like customer support, sales, and the like may be impacted depending on what you're doing.
0: In this episode, we're going to discuss some common mistakes developers make when they're embarking on architecture projects. While the technical aspects of system architecture work are going to vary a lot across organizations, there are several problems that seem to occur over and over again. This is especially true for developers who are experienced enough to be making architecture decisions, but it may be their first or second time doing it because the technical aspects are often detailed, daunting, and usually very interesting. Nearly everybody makes a lot of the same mistakes the first few times. Management a lot of times doesn't realize how different these problems are either. It's much easier for developers to get lost in the work on these projects. The point of this episode is to help you prepare so that you don't. So
1: the first thing uh, that developers, th- this is like a really common mistake that I've made it, I'm sure Beej just made it at some point when you're starting to try to do architectural changes, is not taking the existing skills of your team into account. This sounds kind of mean, but you, know, you don't make architectural changes with the team that you wish you had. You make it with the team that you actually do have. And those may be very different things. You should not make decisions with the assumption that if the team just learned a bunch of new stuff,
0: that everything would be okay. Sometimes you make architectural decisions for the reverse reasons, because your team can't handle what is being asked of them. And so you make changes to fit the team. And that's not a problem. That's usually a wise thing to do. Not all cases, but in some cases.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've gotten away with that before, just from a situation where we had a bunch of developers who were leaking database connections constantly. Making architectural changes that made it easier for them to not have that problem so they could focus on the stuff they actually cared about. That was a reasonable thing. Now, trying to switch it out and go, okay, well, we're doing .NET Core and you got all the dependency injection stuff. Let's rip all that out because they don't want to learn how to do that. That's a bad
0: decision. Yeah. That makes sense. I was thinking more front-end architecture.
1: Yeah, well, front-end architecture is a whole different burning can of garbage. <laughs> right,
0: right. I was just thinking, I'm like, yeah, let's um, let's switch over to this framework because everyone seems to know how to use this as opposed to the one that we we're starting out on. Yeah. Or like, sometimes your team changes too. Literally, the team that I'm working with right now the only two people who are the same are me and the tester.
1: Well, and I mean, like the team I'm working on right now, they've got me doing you know, TypeScript, Node, Nest, Postgres, React. I've got a little bit of Node in my background. i got a little bit of React in my background. I've got Postgres on and off, but not all in the same place together. And so it's it's kind of weird, right? If you do that, if you're a developer that, that can pick stuff up pretty quick, it's not that bad but you don't force that on your team who may not have agreed to that you know, as a group when you're making architecture changes
0: uh, this also means that you really can't deviate very much from the existing style and quality of the code base you have while it's very tempting to try and fix the way the rest of the team does their work that's really not going to, uh, to be a, a good thing we just hired on someone to do some to do technical writing and documentation, and uh, I had a meeting with her today about the app that I, I'm working on. I was like, "Here's sort of what I want for us, like a high level overview of it," because what I have noticed with my team is, and we all do this, all the developers, even myself we'll get so caught up in like the details of a particular functionality that we are working on that we forget about the bigger structure and how, what we're doing relates to everything else. And so we'll get our little piece working and not realize, Oh, Hey, to do this, we had to change this one model that broke all these other things. So yeah, that tends to happen. And so, I mean, I've seen
1: architecture projects where they have said, okay, we're, in addition to this architecture rollout, it's not just, hey, we're going to introduce dependency injection because we kind of need it or whatever. But stuff like, hey, we're completely changing the coding standards across the board. And it's like, that's a massive amount of work that has nothing to do with your architecture changes. They seem to play, put those two together because... It was their opportunity to put it in the bucket and they had management behind them and that's an abuse of power you really do not want to get into doing because you'll you put the whole project in jeopardy. You know, when your architecture changes, you have to make sure that those changes are still comprehensible to the rest of the team and that proper documentation is available for any newcomers. When we say comprehensible, that means comprehensible to a team member who is looking at the code and going through it and they're painfully shy and they're not talking to you. Not, oh, it's comprehensible if if you sit down in a meeting with the architecture team and you know you spend like two days with them. Like it needs to be small enough that they can actually
0: pick it up. Next, I guess the next mistake that tends to get made is assuming that your decisions are entirely technical instead of political. You really have to be very careful about the decisions you make for instance, while migrating to the cloud might be the best technical decision. If upper management is against it for some reason, it's not going to end well if you keep pushing the idea. And I've seen that with, well, pre-COVID with remote work. Yeah. Where upper management was like, no, people aren't going to work as hard and stuff. And it's like, that is the opposite of what the research and the data shows. But they had it in their head that you had to be sitting at a desk, oh, and they all said in their head that they didn't have to sell it, yeah,
1: that's one of the other things too, like you can make political changes, but you have to sell them, and it is different than making a technical change, and technical people forget that because we tell ourselves at least that we do things based on the merits we actually don't, and that oh, the best decision is what's going to win, and you know it's actually the it's still a political decision it's just a different group of politicians, so you, you just have to be You know, super careful there this also applies to decisions within the software development ops qa and technical teams so stuff that doesn't go up into upper management if anything you do threatens to disrupt them you will encounter political problems even if your decision is the right one right so hey you know you made it easier to test the code but now you've doubled the workload of qa because they got to do a whole bunch of stuff to make your your stuff work, if you don't take that into account and start kind of preparing them, you will have problems regardless of the technical quality of your decision.
0: You should also be extremely careful about your tone and try to avoid defensiveness when the rest of the team has questions about architectural changes you are making. I mean, realistically you should avoid defensiveness pretty much all the time. You want to respond not react to criticism and things like that. Because if you're responding, and I think we may have done an episode about this or we may have one in the backlog about responding versus reacting. Maybe it was an aftercast. I don't remember. But basically the idea is if you're responding, then it's a planned out, calm, objective. I know what I'm going to say to make a response to that. If you're reacting, it is this defensive, oh my goodness, like emotional And tying it to your ego. I mean,
1: that's the other. I see this a lot because you'll you'll get a developer who will really, they'll get way down in the weeds and they may, you know, it may be a really, really good decision. But if you can't justify it to the rest of the team, even if you are in management, you're going to have a hard time with this. And like, why do this the hard way? Why spend the extra effort making this problem harder than it is? Just because you don't want to prepare for what somebody's likely objections are. So speaking of being unprepared, the next one is biting off more than you can chew. And we've kind of covered this a little bit with some of these earlier points, but an architecture project might be something like fix the scalability issues in X service. Um, And we'll get into a little bit more detail in a minute, but compare that to the doomed quest that is something like improve the architecture of the whole system. If you don't have a scope that you stay within, you don't have a project.
0: That's something that just really you need to beat that into your head. Yeah. Um, on a smaller scale, I was um, having a conversation with one of the developers I work with uh, on my team today or ye- yesterday. And he was saying, Hey, does like we, we're adding some new features uh, and functionality. And he's working on a story. And he's like, Hey, I'm. I think I I need to like create this. And I'm like, well, that's outside the scope of your story that was supposed to be included in this other one. And he's like, well, I looked at the the exceptions criteria for that other one that's already been done, and it's not in there. And I was like, oh, that's still outside the scope of your story. And if you're hindered by it, then we need to stop what you're working on and either get the PO to write a story for that or find the story for it and work on that. Yeah, so that there's a paper trail too. Yeah. So there's a paper trail, but also it's like, hey, no, you don't need to like, because he's the type that would just be like, all right, I'll just go do it in this one. It's like, no, that's fine when you're working on your own and stuff. Like, oh, hey, I noticed this thing that I need to fix to get here. That's great for personal projects, school projects, side projects, that kind of stuff. But when you're working on a team, that doesn't work out well.
1: Yeah, because I've seen two people do the same thing.
0: Yeah. And of course, like once I told him that, he's like, Oh yeah, that's really smart. I'm like, well, yeah, it's that's experience. That's that's yeah. not smart. That's <laughs> yeah. that's looking down the the hole in my foot, going, I shot myself with that one already once. I don't want to do it again. Yeah, I know not to touch that wire. Yeah, yeah, help you avoid that too.
1: <laughs> in addition to limiting scope your project really should also include a testable hypothesis that indicates whether you succeeded or not. Sometimes this is a little bit harder with architecture projects, but instead of something like I said before, you know, fix the scalability issues in X service, your goal should be something like make X service capable of handling Y requests a minute because it's quantified. Then it's like, okay, yes, we can throw that much at it and we can prove that it didn't fall over and die.
0: You should also, Limit the time you're putting into an architecture project. Think of it like a, I think of it like a spike. You say, all right, I'm going to research this for this time frame," Because you're already in the mindset of architecture, it's very easy to end up sort of gold plating a lot of things that don't require it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, you're already in a project that's essentially gold plating stuff anyway, in a lot of respects when you're at the point of having to do architecture changes, it's because the app is scaled. It's because you're dealing with really sensitive data or, you know, you've got something going on that makes you have to do a lot of work. That's kind of interesting to devs anyway. And there's less accountability. You will absolutely gold plate the daylights out of stuff. If you're not careful, even if you're experienced and you get stuck in there, you have to kind of fight that.
0: So the next mistake is trying to do it all at once rather than iterating, as Will has said several times already, in addition to limiting scope. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) I couldn't help it, too. There's like that same phrase is in there like two or three times. Yeah,
1: well, and, you know, I do kind of want to beat that into people's heads. Like, it's not a good architecture project if the scope is not limited. Yeah. yeah. That is the thing that gets you in trouble. Either like reaching into politics that you shouldn't reach into or irritating people you shouldn't irritate or implementing functionality that you shouldn't do or whatever.
0: It's still fun to pick on you because you use the exact same wording. Yeah. <laughs> so just like I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm like, wait, where are we? Because he he's got that several times. And here, wait, no, just kidding. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, in addition to limiting scope, we should name the episode that. Ooh, that would be a really good episode, unless your project is very small. You need to release your changes in phases this will allow the rest of your team to adjust to the changes you've made before more changes are deployed. Assuming that's possible. Sometimes, like, that's just not possible. Like, say you're updating to Angular 15 and materials doesn't work. You just got to do it all at once.
1: Yeah. Um, And there is going to be stuff like that. But by the same token, you wouldn't say, okay, I'm going to update to Angular 15 And I feel like I want everything
0: to use GraphQL instead of REST. There's always a way for a developer to make it worse. That's more of a scope thing than an iteration thing. Yeah. Um, An iteration thing would be saying, hey, we've got, because I've seen this, where we had three projects within one. It's like, all right, we're going to update this one to Angular 15 and not the other two. And then once that's kind of gotten set in with everybody all right, now we're going to update the next one and the next one.
1: Or fix some of the compatibility things that you can fix first, if there are any.
0: Yeah, there's that. Or say, hey, we're, we're going to update this. We do Angular and.NET. So we're going to update this project to the, the most current stuff. So we're not going to update Angular and .NET in the same release. We'll do one and then the other. Yeah. That's an iteration thing I can, I can see at that level. I mean, the
1: idea here is that you want to limit your risk. If there's something that you didn't think about, and there always is, like what your changes are going to do to build times, you'll find it out earlier when it's easier to adjust. So I worked on a project not all that terribly long ago where there was an architecture team that you know stepped off to the side and they worked on this thing for months. And when they brought it back in, they're like, here's how we're going to organize each chunk of our system. And, you know, it's going to break out and have like a half a dozen libraries for each because, you know, we're separating all these different pieces and stuff. Well, our build times went from, I want to say like eight or 10 minutes. We, you know, we'd gotten it down to eight or 10 minutes to like 40 minutes. Well, when you got a 30 person team that kills that entire team's throughput. And part of that was a result of them going off and doing this thing and not coming back and and reintegrating it into the code base and seeing where the problems were before they kept going further down that road. And I've heard that that was largely not as successful as people wanted it to be. And to my knowledge, they have not actually completed the architecture project. That's crazy. Yeah, well, they took a risk
0: and the risk didn't pan out. Yeah, that's true. The thing is, this also gives you a better and more accurate feedback mechanism from your team just like Will was talking about, they didn't have. A lot of people won't offer feedback when asked to it, but their behavior serves as great feedback. If you see team members having to hack around your changes, then you are the problem. You are the weakest link. (laughs) Yeah. And is that show still around? I have no idea, dude. I don't watch TV. I don't either, but I just remember it from Doctor Who. That's bad.
1: Anyway, so go ahead. You'll see this on architecture projects a lot. Like the architects push something in and then everybody else has to work around it. Well, when the architects see that, it's like, hey, we need to address the thing that they're working around in our next iteration. But if you only got one iteration, you don't. And it just becomes a nightmare to work with a product. Mm -hmm. Speaking of iteration and feedback, the next major mistake that I see is people do their work in secret and then they don't accept feedback. So if you take a group of developers from the team and you sequester them and you have them work on architecture for a few months, this is not a really good idea. At the minimum, the rest of the team needs to be regularly kept in the loop and allowed to ask questions and offer feedback. Probably better to actually have them do some of the
0: work. As annoying as it can be to have to show someone what's going on and stuff, especially if they're not super familiar with it and haven't been like directly a part of it. It is a lot better. For example, this doesn't have to do with architecture, but uh, one of the the developers that I work with will knows who he is. He's friends with him too. When he joined my team, he wanted to learn how to do our uh, pushes to to the test environment, and generally those are done by by leads. But I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll train him up on this. I can I can see that idea in him. Hey start doing the job that you want kind of mentality like that we've, we've talked about here on the show. And so i um, like, you know what? Yeah, I can work with that. Yeah, let's do this. And so started showing him how to do that. And then I got sick when we had a very important push to test. And I went there and instead of having to go to another team and get a lead and have him come over and try and like go through my documentation and, and do it himself, we had someone on the team trained on it. So yeah, I I am very much for like training everybody on all the things even if it's not their their expertise or their specialty.
1: Well, and you'll also learn a lot when you have to explain it to somebody who's not involved. because mm-hmm. Cuz you'll be like, "Wait, that wording is dumb." Like we've been we've been using this word and that is not what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cuz you will. You'll if you get in a group like that, you develop your own lingo and When you explain it to somebody else, they are like, that's idiotic. Why are you calling it that?
0: Oh, oh, yeah, man. There are certain phrases and terms that mean different things depending on who you're talking to.
1: Yeah, like customer. Yeah. (laughs) Means something entirely different to marketing than it does to fulfillment. Yeah. It will slip up and get you.
0: Now, in a lot of organizations, the software architects are considered a higher rank than normal developers. This rank needs to be disregarded when it's time for the team to offer feedback, though. Now, I mean, like, we've got a a software architect, and he's kind of like my go to as a lead. Like, my team comes to me, and if I'm stuck, I go to him, or there's a couple of the other leads that I'll go to. But, uh, well, there's only two other leads, so I'll go to either one of them, too. But uh, anyway, I'll often go to him because most of the time it has to do with architecture stuff if I'm stuck on it.
1: But I mean, when you're having those conversations, it's because I've been the architect that was in a, like a team lead type role Mm -hmm. and the team has to feel comfortable giving feedback and going, okay, this stinks because of X. If your team members don't feel like they can say that because they feel like there's going to be some, some negative consequence for them, then nothing else in this
0: outline is going to help you. You've got to fix that. And by the way, you got to fix it across the board anyway. That's the thing that I do like about our architect is while he is technically, I guess, management, but he he doesn't like he's not people management. He's like systems management. That's not right either. But you know what I mean? He's got the final say or like, yeah, he's on that level with them. But if you disagree with him, it's not going to show up in your performance or anything like that. He's not going to write you up because now if you're like rude or disrespectful or something, he might tell your manager. Yeah, or if you just
1: like up and do something that he doesn't approve of and you knew, I could see that. But you just got to be really careful about that. I mean, it's the same dynamic as you would have with a scrum master. Mm -hmm. Like having management be the scrum master is kind of, I'm pretty sure that's actually like against the scrum guidelines. It's definitely against my experience. (laughs) I don't know about like, you don't have to have it in the guideline. Like you step in that mousetrap once or twice and you know that you shouldn't put your foot there. So yeah, I can't remember whether it's in the guidelines or not, but it's, it's very, very similar to this. There's also another issue that's kind of a corollary to this and that's related to Conway's law and Conway's law, by the way, is the one which says that an organization's design systems or the way that an organization designs systems, I guess probably a better way to put it is going to mirror the internal communication structure of that organization so if you were to separate out the architecture work over time it's going to start separating itself from the rest of the system because of the cost of communication between the architecture team and everybody else rather than integrating with it and that is probably not something you want because it makes it at odds with the rest of the system especially from a political angle because you know you've created this thing that's out here butting heads
0: with developers now Interesting corollary to Conway's law is I've actually witnessed the reverse where the communication structure was changed. Thank you, Microsoft Teams, for ruining really good situations because Teams was introduced and Slack was removed. And especially on a remote team, this was pre COVID remote team, the camaraderie and stuff from having the ability to have these like fun. Slack channels at work where we would like have the video game channel and we get in and we talk about mostly we were talking about Breath of the Wild because I was like, what was going on when that, but like stuff like that. And then we go to teams, and it's like, oh yeah, no, you can't do that. Like you can create your own teams if you've got the structure for that, but it wasn't set up that way. Ah,
1: I was going to say we had that. <laughs> yeah, it was not a problem for. The group I was in, it was definitely a problem having too many of those channels, which is another thing too. But yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that where like the communications system changes and then the software system changes
0: six, eight, ten months down the road. It made it more difficult to maintain those good working relationships. Now that we have bad working relationships after that, it was just... Well, it has to be maintained, right? Like
1: a good car has to be maintained. That doesn't make it a bad car because it needs an oil change.
0: So... The next mistake is stopping all other work while this process is in progress. That was fun to say. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a jerk. That's why I write things the way I do. I enjoyed saying that. Process is in progress. That's fun. Is it in Prague, though? No, I'd be jealous of it. I want to go to Prague.
1: Would it profess progress in process while in Prague? Starting to get into tongue twisters there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So unless a problem is so severe that it threatens the entire system, it is a bad idea to stop productive client-facing work entirely for architectural rework. I mean, there are times where you have to... Regulatory is a great example of that. Or
1: security. Like LastPass right now, they need to stop. And they need to fix their stuff.
0: Across the board. All of it. Whatever it is. TLS 1.2, I think. Yeah, that was another good one. That was, I remember we stopped everything for a couple of weeks to update all of our applications, which yep. some of them were pretty easy. Some of the older ones, this was at my last job, some of the older ones were old. Yeah,
1: I helped somebody recently deal with HTTP posts raw and what do they call it, the uh, the keys like we get back and forth, like talking to an Angular app. My brain's not working.
0: I'm not sure what you're talking about.
1: Like uh, authentication keys. Tokens? Yeah, like the bearer tokens. <laughs> oh, okay. Manually in raw
0: HTTP. Ooh. For a very old app. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that just sounds painful. <laughs> oh, it was fun. You're one of the types that would think it's fun.
1: Oh, yeah, it was a blast. Let's see if that dude's got some more work. (laughs) I mean, let's be
0: honest. I would enjoy that too. But Yeah,
1: I know. But yeah, you get into, and there's just times you got to do stuff like that. But you need to bear in mind that if something is an existential crisis, like those should not be coming very often. Yeah. If you have an existential crisis every day, you're either already dead or you're overestimating how dangerous something is. Mm -hmm. The reason that stopping client-facing work is a risk to your project well besides the you know the obvious is that it biases you towards larger all at once fixes instead of iterative changes and improvements because you're going to sit there and go well we've got to get back to regular client work and catch up after this so we better get all the fixes in we want now because we're not getting any more for a year so that bias will will really really get you I've, I've watched that happen
0: architecture work should not be considered to be working until it is in use so just like any other work Therefore, you want to make sure you deploy small, reasonable units of change while other work is going on. Just like any other work, you don't want huge, massive changes. I mean, about the only time you want a big, that big of a deployment is when you like release a new product, I would think. Like, back in December, we took a new product to production. That was a big thing but then we did an update a few weeks ago and we're about to do one tomorrow night to it to production. And so it's just small iterative changes. These are some bug fixes that the users found when they got in there and like were using it on mass.
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of can roll these things out with, you know, stuff like feature flags, for instance. And go okay, QA is going to test this and other code is going to change to accommodate this but it's not going to be used in production yet right for one so the rest of the team can get used to it you know they can look at that code they, they'll get familiar with it just from having to debug through it versus you know we're gonna have this massive merge conflict of thousands of files and we're gonna try to fix that like you don't want to do that you don't want to be there so another mistake is introducing large technological changes alongside architectural changes And I realize, you know, sometimes you are going to get technological changes like, hey, we're going to message queuing. Well, that is a shift in your architectural system. But it gets really tempting to use a new framework or to change databases or to completely switch to microservices when you roll out an architectural change. And by default, it's really best to have a bias against doing these things as a side effect of
0: anything else. They should be their own thing. Yeah. Swapping to a microservice architecture is not a good architecture project. Factoring out a single microservice is. So is building a framework for the microservices. Once you understand how you're going to do it. Yeah. But there are simply too many moving parts in most applications for a microservice refactor to be done as a single project. I mean, this is... I've Been a part of a team doing this. And that is literally what we did. We took and we built out the framework with one service broken out. And, like, all right, how is this service? We had to build the framework for it to continue working with everything else. And so, like, you got the framework and the first service in that initial iteration. And then after that, it was like, all right, we're just breaking off each piece one at a time.
1: Yeah. The big thing is. you got to remember that your team is going to have to adapt to whatever technology is being used architecturally. So, if you change too much stuff at once, first of all, it creates resentment, you know, and it also makes people just actively resist what you're trying to do. But it also slows everybody down tremendously. Uh, it's really a lot better to do small changes and let the team climb the learning curve while you, you know, are not killing productivity.
0: The, Next mistake is failing to keep existing parts of the system stable and performant. You really should never say, well, we'll fix that later when your architectural changes slow things down or cause any type of stability or security issues. While you may be able to fix it later, a lot of times you find that later is a lot further away than you think.
1: Yeah, and this doesn't just include client-facing considerations. In fact, most people are pretty good about avoiding client-facing stuff. Like, if your architectural changes cause issues with things like QA or the build pipeline, those are two things that get forgotten a lot, or even just the regular developer experience, then you need to address that before you add more stuff onto it. I have seen architecture rework basically 6x build times before and kill throughput for the whole team or make it where you can't build at all.
0: Dude, the way you said that, you're like, I've seen things, man. Yeah,
1: I have. And (laughs) I've even seen it go to the point where it like, it broke the continuous integration system. And they're like, oh, we could just fix that later. And it's like, no, dude, everybody's depending on this being there. Fix it now. We're not putting this off for eight months while you go gallivanting around AWS trying to figure out how you're going to do some new framework thing. Like, Everything is on fire. Yes. And I was a jerk during that meeting as opposed to other meetings. Yeah. I was more
0: of a jerk. Ah, I see. I was an enhanced jerk. Mm. Multi-threaded even. So speaking of wills enhanced jerkiness, (laughs) the final mistake is not measuring the impact of changes as you complete them. I can see this making well very salty. <laughs> salty, yes, that's a good way to put it. Before embarking on architectural projects, you must have good measurement from the current system. Uh, things like the average build time, average number of database connections in use, number of requests a second, number of critical errors, that sort of thing. As your control group to know, hey, here's where we're starting from are these changes making it better or worse or keeping it the same?
1: Yeah. And if you don't have those things, your first architecture project is to make them. Make them exist. Mm-hmm. Because again, like you're wanting to iterate and you're wanting to fix a thing. You, if you cannot tell that you fixed it, you did not fix it. Just by definition, like we're not going to accept the hypothesis that you say you fixed it. That's not something that is going to be accepted most places. After a deployment of a subset of changes, you need to gather those numbers again and see what impact you made on the system. And you really need to be extra careful when anything shows a significant variance in either direction if it wasn't expected. You know, if you change the system and your 45-minute build time went down to 10 seconds, that may be great. It's probably not. Something ain't
0: getting built. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know <laughs> Something ain't getting built.
1: Yeah, like if you didn't expect that, like you weren't going, okay, this is going to fix our build time issue, right? Like look for anything you didn't expect because dumb stuff happens with architecture projects.
0: Yeah, yeah. The idea here is that you find the problems that you've introduced before other team members, management, and especially before customers. Uh, It's better to already be working on a fix for a problem when someone outside of your group notices it and brings it to your attention. Yeah, it's even better to find it in dev. Yes. (laughs) But I would hope that people
1: would, would understand that. So guys, architecture projects can be fun and they can provide huge improvements to software systems, provided that you conduct them correctly. However, many developers, ourselves included at various points and probably at different points in the future too, it's really easy for us to get too focused on the architecture considerations that we're dealing with. Because it's complicated and it's really easy to ignore the impact on the rest of the system or on other team members. And this can cause a perfectly good architectural solution to fail in a drastic manner. It can also alienate the rest of the team, irritate management and actively harm customers in a way that will cause problems for your team, if not for the entire organization. Fortunately, most of these big mistakes that you can make are really easy to avoid. Provided that you plan ahead, use an iterative approach and involve the rest of the team in the work you're doing. That's all we've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For
0: references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You
1: can also follow us on Twitter at Complete Pod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com